If you would like to borrow a Bible, you can raise your hand and the ushers will let you borrow a Bible. For many of you, you might just sing on Sunday morning or maybe you're not much of a singer unless you're in the shower or something. Um, we have the worship team has actually uh, got this insert. They stuck in your bulletin today are a couple of songs you might want to sing during the week uh, to continue worshiping throughout the week. At my house, I am the worship leader. It is a scary thing. I lead worship during our family worship time. And that's scary enough because I have a terrible voice. And to make it worse, I rarely know the words to the songs. I butcher them. So I'm very grateful that they have put this insert in there. At least I can get one thing right. So I encourage you to sing throughout the week and worship. As Pastor John mentioned earlier, we do have a membership class today. If you're not a member here, want to know more about this church, want to think about joining the church, want to encourage you to jump on over there. We have college students who are members, people, singles, couples of all ages. We really want to encourage you, whoever you are, to, to go on over there, even if you're new and you want to learn more about our church, consider joining. Go on over there to the offices today after the service. This is the way I want to start today. I want to start with God. There are two truths about God's character that I like to just take my life and just, just land there. And there's two truths about who God is. I just want to sink my soul deep into. The first is the idea that God is absolutely sovereign. All right? He is sovereign and in control of everything. When uh, dice are rolled, and whatever the outcome is, God ordained that. The number of days that you will live, God has Planned. Now, I know for some of us, there's different language that we like to use to explain God's sovereignty, and there's different levels of comfortability and explanation of what the scriptures say. But if you read the scriptures, it, it seems to say that God um, allows, causes, or ordains everything that happens. This is uh, known as His providence. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a doctrine, not just a doctrine that I'm passionate about. It's, it's something true about God that I'm passionate about. And in my last church, I actually tried to lead, and we did lead a name change. The, the name of my last church was called this. The Christian and Missionary Alliance Church of Santa Monica, California. It was a bit bulky. It's hard to say that. So I, I'm like, let's change that. And so we changed the church name to Providence. God's sovereignty is very precious. Another character trait of God that is equally as important is God's love. He loves his children. He's merciful. He, he's, he's kind to us. His love toward us is new every morning and it continues throughout the day. I, I think we would almost be broken if we knew how much God loves us as his children in Jesus. His love is extravagant for us. And most people in here, most Christians in here, understand to some extent God's sovereignty and God's love. And we can embrace these two as we embrace our Lord. 
there is something that happens to us in our lives that challenge our faith in who God is. They challenge both these concepts of his sovereignty and his love. And you know what that thing is? It's, it's suffering. Pain often distorts our view of God's sovereignty and it often distorts our view of God's love. And when things go wrong in our lives and you know they, when they go wrong in your life that we start to get confused and try to understand how God is both sovereign and loving. This past November in North Dakota... Three college girls were driving late at night. Their softball teammates played softball at the local university. And they're just driving out looking at stars in the beautiful, beautiful night. And they happened to get off road a little bit and drove into a pond and sank. And all three of them, 20, 21, and 22, they all died. They're not drunk, not out partying, just driving along, looking at stars. Went the wrong way, drowned to death. This past Thursday started the softball season again for my 10-year-old daughter and her friends. They have been together for many years. We had practiced Thursday. But if something like that happened to my daughter and two of her friends, I would be devastated. And it's when suffering happens like that in our lives, it, it's really hard for us to come to grips with how God could let something like that happen if he is both sovereign and loving. Today what we're going to do is we're going to start studying a new book of the Bible. And all over the whole book you're going to see God's sovereignty and you're going to see his love over the little bitty details. But when we begin the book, it begins on a note of great suffering. Let's turn to the book of Ruth. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament closer to the front. After the book of Judges, the book of Ruth. Last night when I was tucking my daughter in, she asked me, Daddy, what book of the Bible are you preaching through tomorrow? And I said, Ruth. And she said, we're, we're starting Ruth? Really? Yeah! <laughs> and you're like, yeah, let's turn to Ruth. Ah, Ruth, where's it even at? Come on, let's get excited. You know, we're about to study Ruth. This is a big deal, all right? This is a great book. It's a great love story. A great love story. You like love stories? This is a good love story, all right? And it's such a great love story that it, it's significant theologically also that, it, that it's going to produce descendants out of this love story that end up in the line of the Messiah, Jesus. But in order to get there, we've got to start on a note of suffering. 
So let's just scrap all the introductory comments and remarks about context, and let's just get right in and try to figure it all out. You okay? Let's take it verse by verse. Let's start in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Let's just stop there. All right? I just can't keep going. Let's just stop, all right? We have this 400-year period called the Judges. It's a span in Israel's history that kind of runs roughly when the Israelites came into the Promised Land under Joshua up until their first king. And if you wanted to live sometime in the Old Testament, don't pick Judges. It's a mess. The people are an absolute mess. The Israelites are all over the place in their depravity. And, and a good snapshot of this period can be found in the book of Judges. If you want to turn back, maybe you turn back a page, I don't know, to look at the last verse in Judges. Look at the last verse in Judges. In the ESV, it's like a, a, a sentence all by itself. It's verse 25 of chapter 21 of Judges, and it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wouldn't that be a great way to live? Like just, just when I wake up in the morning, I want to do what's right in my eyes. And if you think that's a great way to live, read Judges. It's not. The Israelites, they're, they're, they're whoring after other gods. The gods of the other countries, they're just, I'll go after this god, I'll go after that god. And they're all over the place. And God's like, if you love those gods so much... Well, just go party with them. Go for it. I'll give you into the hands of your enemies. And so God would turn them over to their enemies. And they're like, yeah, no. We don't like this. God, help us. And so God would show mercy, and he would raise up judges. They're like military leaders that would come in and, and kill God's enemies and would rescue his people. And people are like, yeah, we're going to follow the Lord for about 10 minutes. And then they go back to worshiping foreign gods. And then God would hand them over again. And then God would raise up a judge to rescue them. It's a cycle. And you know some of these judges. You know, they're famous. Samson, Deborah, Gideon. There's a lot of these famous judges that God would raise up to rescue his people. But the book of Judges ends by saying that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so you take the, the setting of Ruth and you plop it right in the middle of that. And it gets worse. Look at verse 1 again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the Israelites, they viewed famines from the hand of God. And it was often a sign of judgment. And if God needed grounds for punishing his people with a famine, he certainly had it in the rampant worship of these other deities. But what's amazing in, in the midst of judges and the midst of this famine, living in the worst of times, we're introduced to a family. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon, and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Many of you grew up in a family of four. Here's a family of four. We have the, the husband, Elimelech, the wife, Naomi, and the two boys. 
And it's questionable. You can debate all day long on whether he should have left Bethlehem to, to go, go to Moab because Bethlehem is where God's people were. In fact, Bethlehem is called the house of bread, the house of food. But the house of food is empty. So we've got to pick up and go to where the, the, the people who worship other gods, they worship the god of Chemosh where they sacrifice humans to their god. And so they move from the land that God has ordained for them to be in and they go over to live among the, the Moabites. It's, it's, a, it's a very questionable move. Probably shouldn't have done it, but he's thinking, I'm going to avoid death if I leave Bethlehem to move where the food is. I'll avoid death. Let's see how that works out. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. I don't know how he died. It's just a blunt statement. He, he, he died. He left Bethlehem in order to avoid death. And what happens to him? He dies. And his two boys don't fare any better. Look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Now, just in case you're wondering, should they have married these Moabite um, women uh, men, you, you can debate all day long if, if these women should have married these men. You can debate all day long about that. Um, but just know this. It was forbidden for Moabites and their descendants to enter the, the, the temple for worship up to like 10 generations. So it probably wasn't a good marriage. And you kind of wonder, did, did Naomi approve of these marriages or was she kind of like, great, my husband's dead. I, I need some, some, some grandbabies. I need, we need to carry on the line here. So maybe she thought this was a, a good way to, to do that, but it didn't go so well. Married for 10 years, no babies. And then look what happened to her two boys. Verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We have no idea how they died. But the text says that Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. Elimelech leaves Bethlehem not to die. What happens to him in Moab? He dies. And both of his boys die. If you can have some semblance of compassion for Naomi, you understand what she is going through right now. Her husband has died. Her two boys have died. She had to leave her country because of a famine. They married these two Moabite girls, probably not the best thing in, in her mind. And in her mind, she is left with nothing. Have you ever pictured in your mind what it would be like to lose those closest to you? Maybe you, maybe you actually have. And are you tracking with the suffering she's undergoing right now? Maybe, maybe you've not experienced the extent of her suffering, but you can kind of, with a little bit, I mean, uh, what's interesting is a lot of you moved here because you, you, you were so pumped when you first came here, you're like, you're, I'm going to a, a top-notch university or you got this great job and it was going to be awesome and you came here and it's not gone so well or you were in love and you were about to marry someone and you never made it to the altar or you did make it to the altar and wish you hadn't 
And even if your family situation doesn't go to the extent of Naomi's suffering, you have some family issues and pain that you could go on for a while. Just know this. The suffering here is not going to have the last word. And if you're a believer, it's not going to have the last word. There's more to the story. Let's keep looking at it. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the chatter out in the fields of Moab is the crops are back in Israel. And Naomi, her interpretation is God has visited his people again. He has brought them favor. And this is what you're going to see all over the book of Ruth. You're going to see God's fingerprints. You're going to see his sovereignty causing things to to, to happen. And it's not going to always be in these great, fantastic things. It's going to be small little events unfolding that may seem insignificant to you like this. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. God's up to something. We're not quite sure what that is, but he's doing something here. Naomi doesn't see anything on the horizon. Her husband's dead. Her boys are dead. Food's in Bethlehem. I'm going to go to where the food is. She moves back in faith. But when this book is done, part of me wants you to read it over and over again, but part of me doesn't want you to read it at all so that you will be shocked to find out what happens. As Naomi will be shocked. Because when you look back at the end of this book and you look back, you go, oh, God was doing something all along. And that is true in your life and in my life. When we're up front with the suffering, we don't know what's happening. But when we look back, we go, oh, God was doing something then. I didn't see it, but I see it now. His fingerprints of providence and sovereignty are all over your life. That when you're in the face of suffering, that's all you see. But God is still doing something. Verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept. So she's like, all right, I don't have anything for you. Go back to your house of, of, your, of your moms and find love, get married, and, and have babies. And when it says this expression, her mother's house, I was studying this week, and, and apparently that's a description of where marriages were arranged. And which would lead to these girls eventually finding rest in the house of their new husbands. So she says, go back. Here's a blessing. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Hug, hug, hug. Cry, cry, cry. Get out of here. Verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now Naomi's kind of going off. She's like, go back. I have no sons for you to marry. And then her argument gets kind of funny. She's like, did you, did you see any sons in this belly? There's nothing there. And let's just say, I, I found this guy, and we got a little romantic, and got, you know, got married, got romantic, and, and then I, I got pregnant, and they were sons. Are you, like, going to wait till they grow up to marry him? That's a little weird. No. Get out of here. Go back. And then you see Naomi's heart. What's really in there at the very end of 13? Look at it again. For it is, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I have nothing for you because God has messed up my life. You ever said that? God has messed up my life. And, and she's not just saying, yeah, you know, God could have stopped it, uh, my husband dying, my voice. But for whatever reason, he didn't stop it. And, 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 and she could have said, you know, God could have healed my boys, but he didn't. It's not that God didn't just fail to intervene. But what she's saying is, God has direct involvement in afflicting me. God's doing this to me. And it says nothing in here about God disciplining her. It says nothing in here. We, 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 we can't even see if, if this is... We don't know. It doesn't say that. All it says for her is that his hand is against her. She's telling them, you know, girls, you better go back. God's against me. He's afflicted me. And you don't want to be caught in this crossfire. Now today, what we're doing, we're looking at Naomi's story. Next week, we're going to get into the details of Ruth and, and Orpah and, and what they decide to do. But let me just kind of tip you off a little bit. Orpah goes back home and Ruth proceeds with Naomi to Bethlehem. So let's Let's, let's continue with Naomi's story as she is arriving in Bethlehem, all right? She's, she's coming back. She's got Ruth with her. L let's see what it says. Look at verse 20. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is, is this Naomi? Hey, look. Hey, girls, look. Hey, girls, girl, girl, bup, 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 bup. Naomi, Naomi, she's all, it's chatter. It's all over the place. Naomi, is that her? And, and you would think she would go up and say, oh, it's so good to see you, girlfriends. I'm so glad we're back together again. But look, but look what she says. She says, she says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now the name Naomi means pleasant or lovely and the name Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Nah, nah. Don't call me lovely. There is nothing lovely about me or my life. Call me bitter. Little name change there. And the, the scholar uh, has rendered it this way. She says, Call me Mara, for the Almighty has cruelly marred me. And I, I think she's requesting more than a name change. This is, this is her way of expressing suffering and attributing the source of the suffering to God. And, and it's a complaint. She says, I left full and the Lord has brought me back with nothing. So she's honest about what's going on. What I want to do right now is give you two different ways that you can understand this. Maybe two different ways it could be interpreted. Two different ways you need to think through what, what Naomi's doing here. And I don't know the, the final answer here. I'm just working through this myself and in my own life and looking at the broad view of, of Scripture. And, and I want you to study this. If you're in small groups, study this some more. Talk about it tonight. But I'm going to give you kind of two views of how to view suffering. And I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. Right now, I'm going to do something in your life. I'm trying to prepare you to suffer well. Because chances are most of you have not experienced a lot of suffering in your life. But you will. I was listening to a sermon, watching a sermon this past week on, on the web from a guy many of you may have heard of. His name is Matt Chandler. He was speaking at a conference this week in uh, Kentucky together for the gospel. Now, you, you know who speaks at these conferences? Big name people like John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, godly older men. And they bring in this, this young guy, early 30s. Like, why would they bring him in? It's because around Thanksgiving, he started having some problems in his brain. He has cancer. He is probably, he is one of the most well-known younger preachers in America. And he gets up there and stands before 7,000 people, many of whom are pastors. He used to have a head full of hair, totally shaved off, and you can see the scars on his head. And he's talking about suffering. And he said that he came to his church in Dallas, the village church. I'm from Dallas. I've been to his church. He said he came there about, you know, five years ago, and he was a young guy, 26, 27. And he said what he wanted to do was prepare his people, who were mainly college students, people in their 20s and 30s. He said what he wanted to do is start to prepare them to suffer well, because most of them have a bad theology with regard to suffering. Just crazy thoughts when it comes to suffering. And he said, yeah, I got in there, I started preaching the word, I started preparing them for suffering, I was getting them ready to suffer well, and he said, what I didn't realize is that God was getting me ready to suffer. To suffer in a way that would bring him glory. 
And that's what I'm trying to do with you right now. I don't know what's going to happen to any of us, to me. Or to, we, it's going to come our way, I guarantee you. There's got to be some way we're thinking through it, we're aligning our hearts, but we're thinking rightly about what's, what's going to happen to us in suffering. So that's why I want to give you these two takes, and I'm not just throwing these out for fun. I, I really am thinking through these, so think with me. These two different ways to view what, what Naomi is doing here. Number one, let me put this up on the screen for you. Maybe we could say Naomi needs a balanced perspective. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe she's crying out to God. She's accusing God because she does not have a balanced perspective. All right, so, so Naomi has the sovereignty part down right. Wouldn't you agree? She's got the sovereignty part down right. Uh, she's, she understands that God is sovereign. He's, he's over everything. But understand this. Even though we say God is sovereign, we have to understand the Bible that says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, right? So we understand that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. So we need to understand that somehow, as we piece together God's sovereignty, you need to understand this, that God is never morally responsible for evil, suffering, or, or, or wickedness. There's no moral responsibility. He is, he is light. In them, him there is no darkness at all. And yet the Bible consistently teaches that God allows, ordains, and causes everything. My favorite verse in the Bible, it is my favorite verse in the Bible. I haven't memorized the NIV, but I'll give it to you in the ESV. It's Ephesians 1.11. I love this verse. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty is that God ordains everything. And I understand this is challenging. I get that. I know this is hard to grasp. I, 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 I totally get that. And if you think I have it all figured out, I don't. But the Bible consistently teaches that, that God is sovereign. And how that all plays out with the thousands of decisions you make every day, how that plays out with the suffering and weakness in our world, I, I, I can't put that all together. But I know when I'm reading the Word, it's consistently showing that God is sovereign. And I think Naomi gets that. God, you've done this to me. Okay. But maybe she needs a balanced perspective because it doesn't seem to indicate much love. Uh, where's the love? Where's the mercy? Where's the faithfulness? You're saying God's sovereign. Come on, uh, what about the love, Na Naomi? Do you, do you get that part, Naomi? I'm, I'm not going off on her. I totally, I totally get what she, what's going on there. But maybe she needs to understand more that God's working for good. And you know how it is that when you're, when you're faced with suffering, it's kind of right in your face. You, 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 you really don't see anything good at all, right? You just, your perspective is, whoo, it's off. But if Naomi would open her eyes, she would say, aha, there is food again in Bethlehem. She would say, I've lost everything, but at least I have Ruth with me. And if she would think really, really deeply, she's totally missing this. There is someone in her family that can give her hope. I'm not going to tell you that yet. Don't read ahead. But even if none of those things were available, 
you need to still understand that God is good. And I know many of you are waiting for me to do this verse, and so I'll throw it up there. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I love that verse. It's, it's talking about God having a history of working for the good of his people. And it has been argued that what Naomi is failing to do is she is failing to understand the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was sold by his brothers. He ended up as a slave. He ended up suffering in Egypt and then he rose to great power. A famine hit and God used Joseph to save the lives of many people including his very own family. Remember the, the, this passage in Genesis fifty twenty. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so what's happening is that God has a history of turning hopeless situations around, and he will in Naomi's life. But right now, Naomi is on the front end of it, and all she sees is suffering. And in her suffering, maybe she needs a balanced perspective. God's sovereignty, God's love. And and I'm wondering kind of where you're at right now. Maybe you're in suffering. You need to prepare for suffering. Suffering will come your way. You're trying to work out your understanding of God from the Bible. Are you off balance a little bit? Do you, do you understand his love but not his sovereignty or sovereignty not his love? Let me encourage you to just press in. Press in. Don't throw out one verse. Don't throw out another. Hold him in balance. God is sovereign in control of everything. And yet he loves his children. He's merciful towards them. I know there's tension there. I know there's a mystery there. I understand that. But that's the balanced perspective. And maybe Naomi is off a little. Maybe. Let me give you the second possibility. Now this one may kind of really throw you off, so get ready. Second possibility. Naomi cries out because she does have a balanced perspective. Huh. Think about that. Maybe she does understand his sovereignty. Maybe she does understand his love. And that's why she's so mad. She gets it. If, if he's sovereign and if he's loving, then why is this happening? Bible is full of believers who offer their complaint to God. It's because they know he's sovereign and they know he's loving. And when that doesn't seem to be playing out in their circumstances, it's like, what are you doing, God? It's a complaint. And, and there's a really fine line here. And, and I, I just... There's a very fine line, and I don't know how to, to parse it for you. And we've got to be careful because it's not a complaining spirit. Some of you have a complaining spirit, and you're, you're not acting in the way of the Bible. You're not. You're just griping about everything. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a humble heart of someone who totally gets God's sovereignty, gets God's love, but doesn't get what's happening, and, and voices a complaint to God. I've, I've got to show you something. Come on, come on. Go with me to Job. Go with me to Job. Remember Job? Let's, let's go to Job. Look real quick, please. Job 19. Job 19. 
Job's a good book. Job 19. And you kind of wonder. Uh, Job 19, verse 6. Where, where am I? Where am I even at? All right. Job 19, verse 6. Let's start in verse 6. This is, this is Job talking. He says, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. Oh, by the way, Job had a lot of problems. His family like, died. He's got skin issues. His friends are annoying. Bad stuff financially. Yeah, he's a mess. All right. Verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my path. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. And on and on and on Job goes. And you want to say, don't talk like that to God. Don't talk that way to God. God's going to strike you dead. But when you read the book of Job, when it's all said and done, even at the beginning, it, it says um, Job didn't sin with what he was saying. He's expressing his heart to God of what he's feeling, his honest emotions. And when you go to the prophet Jeremiah, oh, 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 the prophet Jeremiah is like, you deceived me. And I was deceived. And when you look at the, the psalmist, why do you hide your face from me? You have these, these honest expressions of suffering. Christopher Wright, he, he says this. I like Christopher Wright. He says, It seems indeed that it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain and protest to God without fear of reproach. It's like an act of faith. They're going straight to God. It's a fine line. And what Wright says is that when we face disaster or when we see calamity in our world, sometimes we tend to get emotionally detached and we will say things like this. Um, yeah, it's all part of God's curse on the earth. Um, yeah, it's God's judgment. Remember after the earthquake in Haiti, the pastor said, yeah, that's God's judgment. Yeah, really? You know that, huh? And why is the earthquake not happening right here? Or we'll say things like, well, suffering happens. It's, it's meant for warning. Or it's, open, it's, it's ultimately for our good, which is true. Or we'll say things like, God is sovereign, so that must make it okay in the end. And what Wright is saying, and I think he's, he's, it's the truth, is that believers in the Bible don't seem to do any of that. They seem to cry out to God with honesty. And it's not because they don't know God. It's because they do know God. And Naomi's lament is loud and it's painful. But I don't think we should look at it as an act of defiance or turning her back on God. But as an act of faith. And she is pressing into God. It's about being honest. Now I've told 
through the years, I've told many, many times, many different turnovers of our church. I've, I've told you how I am starting at 22, for most of my 20s. I took care of my, my, my ailing grandmother, and it was a time of suffering and a pain. I went to Dallas to go to Dallas Seminary to study to be a pastor. I did not plan to take care of her. And I would journal, and I would pray, and I would say, God, what are you doing? You brought me here to go to seminary, not to change my grandma's diapers. What are you doing to me? I couldn't see it. I was crying out. And basically saying, God, I don't think you know what you're doing. But many years I'm looking back, right? You kind of look back and you go, oh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I see it now. You weren't just to train my head in seminary. You also want to train my hands. In, in my heart. And you know, when I was an unbeliever in high school, uh, in junior high, and until I got saved at 19, I wasn't very nice to girls. I just wasn't. And God's like, I'm going to show you how to treat girls. Here, feed your grandma, give her her pills, pay her medical bills, hang out with her and watch the Waltons on TV, hang out with her and be patient and, and learn how to treat girls. Because there's something coming in the future. And now I have a wife and two girls. And I, I pastor women. And where did I learn how to treat girls? Hmm, suffering. <laughs> With my grandma. <laughs> yeah. I would have been a mess. Suffering with my grandmother. God knew what he was doing. But not till I look back. But in the midst of it, we go like, God... You know what's up. You're sovereign and you're loving. And we're, I think we're in a better place than Naomi because we have a better perspective. I think something really cool, I really want you to listen to this. This is, this is, this is amazing. If anybody understands God's sovereignty and the love of the Father better than anybody else, it is Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree? He understands the Father's sovereignty, He understands the Father's love, and, and yet one of the most mysterious profound statements that I do not even begin to comprehend from the cross, what did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't think it's a theological question for him. Absolutely he knows why. He's bearing my sin. He's bearing your sin. The Father's wrath is against him. He knows why. But he is experiencing this God-forsakenness because of your sin and my sin. He is being killed. And the wrath is going on him. But that is followed by victory. As he conquered Satan and sin and bore the wrath of God and he rose again in victory. And when you look at the cross, you think of this. You think of this. Because of his experiencing God forsakenness because of your sin, no matter what you're going through, you will never, ever be forsaken. Never. If you're a believer in Jesus, you repent it, you put your faith in Christ, he is never going to forsake you. I don't care what it feels like. He will never forsake you. So in our suffering and our pain, God is sovereign. God is loving. And yet he says, come on, come to me, cry out to me.
bare your soul to me. Talk to me. Be honest. And that's kind of what I want us to do now. Now, not only go to church, we, we, it's between us and God, and that's the way I kind of want it to be right now. Just kind of express your heart to God. We're going to sing a couple songs. I want you to express whatever's going on to God. And, and if you want to sit down, just sit down and do that. If you want to stand, stand and do that. But let me give you permission that we have carpet over there, carpet over there, carpet somewhere up there. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to express your heart down on your face, get down on your face. I just want to give permission. It's a time where we can come to God and express what's going on, trying to just crowd him for sovereignty and his grace and being honest and knowing that he will not forsake us. So let's go to this time right now, prayer and into worship. Let's pray. Lord, I know that you have brought many of us through deep waters of suffering and yet you say you'll be with us. They will not consume us. They will not overtake us. When we walk through the fire, we will not be burned. You will rescue us. And right now, we're facing the, the depths of suffering, pain-wise things happening relationally to us, physically. We just want to cry out to you and say, God, we trust you. Help us to trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. And help us to look at Christ and see his forsakenness on the cross and know that we will never be forsaken in Jesus. We are accepted by you. So right now, Lord, we just want to worship, press in, in all honesty to you. Hear our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen.